The song that we sang in our service, Precious Lord, Take My Hand, was written by a man named Thomas Andrew Dorsey. He was a jazz musician, and in 1932, he and his wife were expecting their first baby. He was asked to come sing and play piano at a revival meeting in St. Louis, and he didn't want to go because he knew his wife was expecting, and it was very close to the time she would deliver. But he just felt conviction that he needed to be there, so he went, and while he was there, he got a telegram that his wife had passed away, but that she had passed away during childbirth, and that at that time, the baby was still alive. So feeling a mix of emotions, obviously sad that his wife had passed away, but happy that his child was still alive, he went back to his home, traveled all the way there to only find out that his child had passed away that night as well. And as he worked through this trial, he doubted God and he doubted God's love. And he went through a time where he would describe just really questioning the sovereignty and the love and the goodness of God. But then it hit him one day that God was still with him in his trial. He could still trust and depend on the Lord. And he recalled an old tune that he'd heard in Sunday school And to that tune, he put his own words on there, Precious Lord, take my hand. And as we sing that song, we remember the story of this man and the story of so many who have gone through suffering and pain. As we thought about suffering in the last several weeks, we know that suffering isn't unique, but it's something that happens to everyone. Sometimes when we're suffering, we feel like we're alone, that no one else gets it, that no one else understands We find that there are other people that have had to go through suffering as well. I don't know about you, but when I'm going through suffering, music is something that I can cling to. Sometimes you can know the truths of God's word. You can read it on the page. You can listen to sermons and preaching on suffering. But there's something about music that takes the truths that we already know about God and just brings them to life. We see this in our text today as Habakkuk is going through suffering. He's going through what's really the end of his nation at that point. The end of his maybe physical life, everything that he knows will probably be destroyed. And yet he writes a song. He writes a psalm. And we talked about this last week, that this chapter is laid out like a psalm or a song. Verse 2 is the chorus. Verses 3 through 15 make up three different verses. And then verses 16 through 19 are the bridge. And it's so interesting that Habakkuk from chapter one goes from questioning God and having concerns and bringing his request before him. And he ends it with singing. We know it's a song because at the end it says to the choir master with stringed instruments. I mean, it's something you would find in the Psalms. It should remind us of many of the songs in the book of Psalms. And his song is on what it looks like to trust God, what faithfulness looks like, how we can worship God in suffering. And what I thought about doing is just saying we're going to look at all of chapter 3 last week and then we move on to whatever else we were going to start this week. But I thought that these last three verses especially deserved our careful attention and consideration because of their importance. Habakkuk shows us this morning what it looks like to be faithful in suffering. We know there are Christi- as Christians, there are trials in our lives that can shake our faith and our confidence in God. 
Sometimes trials are a gut punch and they test our faithfulness to God. Do you remember the story of Job? At the beginning of the story, God is almost bragging on Job to Satan. Satan's in heaven with God and God says, Have you seen my servant Job? There's no one like him in the land. He's faithful. And Satan says, Well, he's only faithful because you've given him all these good things. But if you allowed me to just take those things away, he would renounce you. He would not be faithful anymore. So God, and it's interesting, he doesn't take them away himself, but he allows Satan to be at work and take these things away. And does it shake the faith and the confidence in Job? Well, no, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Sometimes we don't have the faith of Job in trials. Sometimes we're like children who, when everything's going well, we're happy and we say, oh, God is such a great God and we want to worship him. And then at the second that things go wrong, we say, God, why have you forsaken me? Why is my whole world falling apart? And that happens more often than we would like. And let me be clear. I've said this often in our series. God wants to hear about our suffering. It's not a surprise to him what we're going through. He wants us to communicate with him in prayer about what we're going through. But he also wants us to trust in him. And we see that this morning in our final three verses. When faced with suffering, we can praise God, our Redeemer. What we want to see is when we are faced with suffering, we can praise God, our Redeemer. And this, these last three verses show us Habakkuk's confidence in The Lord. We want to look this morning specifically at how we can trust God during suffering. What does it look like to trust God in suffering? And first of all, we want to see that as we trust God in suffering, we want to recognize God's sovereignty in life. I don't normally alliterate, but when I do, I decided this morning to do three R's of how we can trust God in suffering. First of all, we recognize God's sovereignty in life. And we'll look at both verses 16 and 17. We ended last week's sermon by looking at verse 16. And here's what it says. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. We said last week this is a description of of Habakkuk watching the enemy come into his land. Maybe they hadn't come yet, but he knows they're coming, and he knows what this is going to look like. He'd been watching the Babylonians destroy other nations. And during that time, Habakkuk is thinking, what is going to happen when this happens to us? So you can see this imagery. He says, I hear them coming, and my body is trembling. Have you ever been so afraid that you're just shaking? You're just nervous we've got two dogs at home we talk about them often and when there's fireworks both of them but especially mac starts shaking and he usually goes into the closet and tries to get as far away from the noise as he can and he's just laying down shaking until the fireworks are over so if you're launching out fireworks by our house just know that our dogs are shaking in the closet so, Mac, er, so Habakkuk, not Mac, is shaking, hearing them coming. His body's trembling. It says his lips quiver at the sound. He's almost stuttering as he listens to them coming. 
rottenness enters my bones. He feels weak. He feels like his body is decaying. His legs are trembling. It's almost like this, they're buckling, like he can't even stand up and be upright. Now, what's interesting about what Habakkuk says here is he says, yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble. And what does that mean? What does Habakkuk mean when he says that? He says, I'm going to, even though I'm outwardly not okay, inwardly, I will quietly wait for this to happen. And why did Habakkuk know this would happen? Because God said it was so. God said, I'm sending the Babylonians. They will destroy Judah if God said it, we can believe it. But that's not all that God said. He said, I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. God not only promised Habakkuk that Judah would have destruction, he also promised Habakkuk that the Babylonians would be destroyed as well. So even though externally he's not okay, internally he trusts that God is sovereign. When I was doing school, especially growing up, one of my least favorite days was test day, especially if the teacher wasn't very clear about what was going to be on the test. There were some classes that I would tell my parents growing up, I can't study for this exam because I have no idea what's going to be on it. He's not given us a study guide. I have no idea what the questions are going to be. And you don't have a lot of confidence going into that type of situation because it's unknown. My favorite teachers are the ones who tell you exactly what's going to be on the test, word for word. And so when you take the test, you can have two responses. And this has happened to me multiple times. You can either respond by saying, I've studied for the test. I know what's going to be on it. So when I see the questions, I know what the answers are going to be. And I take the test and I pass. Or I know what's going to be on the test. I know I've not studied for the test, and so when I see the questions, I fail because I have no idea what to put for the answers. Habakkuk knows what's going to happen. He knows what the outcome is going to be. And so he waits quietly for the Lord to not only act on behalf of Judah, but also to destroy Babylon as well. Then we get to verse 17. And a lot of people like the last three verses of Habakkuk chapter 3. But if you read verse 17, it's kind of confusing. He's talking about fig trees and sheep and herds. And what is he trying to communicate here? What we need to understand about verse 17 is that it's gradually increasing in the severity of the judgment that's taking place. It starts out small and then it gets bigger. He starts by saying, though the fig tree should not blossom. And by the way, these all sound like they're hypothetical situations. Like, what if this happens? Or what if that happens? But Habakkuk knows because of the judgment that's coming, all of these things would eventually happen to Judah anyways. So when that day comes, when they invade, there would not be fig trees that blossom. Now, why is he talking about figs? I don't know if you've ever had a fig before, or if you buy figs at the store the only time I can ever really remember having a fig is when my grandpa would bring home fig newtons and he would give me one of those little fig newton cookies and I would eat them and kind of pretend to like them, but they weren't really my favorite just as a kid. They were kind of bitter. But in the Old Testament, figs were a delicacy. They were something that they would eat. It was not an essential ingredient to your diet, 
But you could have a fig and it would be something nice and refreshing for you. They would make fig cakes for you to eat. So Habakkuk is saying, what would happen if the fig tree just didn't blossom? If there were no more figs anymore? And really, the answer to that is no one would really care. I mean, it would affect some people. Some people might say, man, I wish I had figs. But it's not going to lead anyone to starvation. Let me put it in 21st century terms. What would happen to you if there was just no more ice cream? You couldn't have ice cream anymore. Now, we would care about that. I would care about that. Yes. But most of us would say, you know, we can probably do without ice cream. We probably don't need it for our diet. In fact, maybe going without ice cream would help us live longer because we're not engorging ourselves with it. And so this is the lowest possible result of this judgment that can happen. But then he continues. He says, nor fruit beyond the vines. And I think this is referring to grapes and wine production. We know that wine had many uses then. It wasn't just for drinking, even though that's what they used it for a lot of times. It was also for medicinal use as well. They needed it sometimes even because they didn't have a lot of purified water. So this is a little bit more important to their culture. And a lot of people want to talk about, well, the wine back then wasn't as fermented. Well, wine is wine. And people got drunk in the Old and New Testament. That's why Paul says, be not drunk with wine. He's not saying that because you can drink water and get drunk from water. But wine did have an ability to get people drunk in the Old and New Testament. But it was used in some good ways. It was a part of their society. But he said, what would happen if there's no more grapes? No more grape juice, no more wine. And that would be a little bit more important to the fabric of society. But it still wouldn't destroy their society. It still wouldn't cause all of them to despair. Let's keep looking. The produce of the olive fail. Now, I'm not a person that just eats olives on the couch. I know some people do that are really into more healthy snacks, but I'd probably be more upset about the ice cream than rather just eating raw olives or putting it on my pizza. But you don't just use olives for that. You have olive oil. You can use that for cooking. They also used it for lighting lamps as well. So now it's getting a little bit more inconvenience. Yeah, you can probably figure out how to live without olive oil, but you don't have this for cooking. You don't have this for lighting. And all these things are happening at once. You don't have the figs, which are kind of a delicacy, the wine, the olives. Next, the fields yield no food. There's no more grain. One thing you have to understand about Israel is it was a mountainous region. It wasn't like they just had the type of agriculture that we have here, but grain production was important. This would start to cause starvation for the people. This would cause people to really struggle to be able to eat. The flock be cut off from the fold. Now we're talking about there's no sheep. And it was important that they had sheep in that day as well, not just for eating and for consumption but also for sacrifices. This is starting to really break down their society. And there'd be no herd in the stalls. Now, they didn't eat a lot of red meat then, so I don't think this is referring to starvation, but they used cattle and oxen for work. They used it to get the fields ready. They used it to move things. So now what you're witnessing is not just starvation in the Jewish community, but an economic collapse of 
society. You think about today, what would it cause for our society to just collapse? And I mentioned earlier, what would happen if we couldn't have ice cream anymore? Well, we might be sad, but we might be healthier as well. What things would it be hard to take away? What things could be taken away that would make life harder for us? What if there was no bread? What if there was no meat? What if there was no technology? Now, some of us might be happy about that. But what if something happened and you couldn't drive your car anymore? You couldn't use Wi-Fi. You couldn't use your phone. I mean, think about how dependent we are on these things just for everyday life. So what Habakkuk is describing here is an economic collapse of the society. And he says, all of these things could happen. We know what the conclusion is. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, yet I will still find my strength in the Lord. But the other thing that I want us to see in verses 16 and 17 is that he recognizes that God is sovereign in all of this. Why does he have confidence even though his nation is going to be destroyed? Because he's waiting for the day of trouble that God has promised to come on Babylon. Why can you rejoice in the Lord? Because God has said that these things are going to happen and he trusts the sovereignty of God. These things were coming. Habakkuk could see it on the horizon. I don't know how many of you like to track storms or are storm chasers. I think storm chasers are kind of just crazy a little bit in my opinion, but I was very afraid of storms when I was a child. We had a big storm come through here a couple months ago around the 1st of April, and I can remember not really being worried about the storm, and my wife had been texting me because that was before we were married. She was in Terre Haute, and she said, hey, I think there's a storm coming through, and at that time I thought, oh, it's going to miss us. It's not going to hit Trafalgar, and then all of a sudden I saw that there was a tornado warning in Martinsville. And I thought, okay, it could still miss us, but there's probably a better chance that the storm is going to come. And so I was walking around making sure that Mac was okay, and then the power went out. And I thought, okay, now the storm is coming. Now we should be worried. And if you think about the rest of the people in Judah, they didn't know this was happening. They, didn't know, they were living their normal lives, but Habakkuk had insight into the future that they would be destroyed. He could see this on the horizon. God is responsible for the trials of Habakkuk's life. As Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why does God allow these things to happen? Why does he allow trials in our life? Life. We've thought about this a little bit, and we'll talk about how we can respond well in trials. But I want to share with you some of the possibilities for why God allows us to go through trials. And this is not original with me. These are some things that come from John MacArthur in an article that he wrote. Why does God allow suffering? First of all, to test the strength of our faith. I mentioned this earlier, that sometimes God puts trials in our lives as a gut punch to see if we're really trusting in him. Along with that, he says, sometimes God allows trials in our lives to humble us, to make us, to, to remind us of the Lord, to remember him. Sometimes we think we can do things on our own and that we don't need God. Why does God allow suffering? To wean us 
from our dependence on worldly things. Sometimes we're so dependent on the things around us that we're not dependent on the Lord. And so God takes some of those things away. Why does God allow suffering? To call us to an eternal and heavenly hope. We stop finding hope in the things in this world. We start focusing our hope on eternity. Trials reveal what we really love. They show us what we're really after, what our heart desires. They teach us to value God's blessings. Trials help us to have enduring strength for future usefulness. They help us to be more faithful Christians. And then lastly, trials enable us to better help others during suffering. The things that we go through enable us to help others who are suffering in the same way. And that's not to say that there's a reason we can understand for every trial here on earth. But God doesn't waste pain. He doesn't waste suffering. But he's using it in some way for our benefit and his glory. The circumstances in our life are not only allowed by God, but he's planned them to be there so that he can be glorified in us. Secondly, we not only want to recognize the sovereignty of God in life, we want to rejoice in the Lord. We want to rejoice in the Lord. He says in verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of our salvation. Habakkuk knows what is coming. He can see this on the horizon. He recognizes that this is going to happen, but he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And that yet is there because it's a contrast. It's not what we would expect Habakkuk to say. If you were to tell Habakkuk, hey, you're going to be very afraid. Your body's going to be trembling at what's coming. And then all of your food, all of your economic wealth, everything that you have that gives you security and comfort in life is going to be taken away. You wouldn't expect Habakkuk to rejoice. Now, there's times in suffering where we just say, this has happened, but I'm going to trust God. That's not wrong. That's what we should do. That's not the same thing as rejoicing. Why do we rejoice? What are things that cause us to rejoice in life? Well, they're usually happy things. They're usually things that bring us joy. They're things that we find comfort in. They're usually not trials. And I don't think what Habakkuk is arguing here for is some kind of Christian masochism. Why is Habakkuk rejoicing in the Lord? How could he rejoice with all of this suffering that he knows is coming his way? I think the next line shows us. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk is not just trusting in God. He's rejoicing in God. As I've been subbing at the school, it's interesting to see what the other teachers think about substitute teachers. I can remember as a kid, if we knew a sub was coming that was easy, that we liked, we would cheer, and sometimes the teachers would roll their eyes. If we knew a sub was coming that was mean and that made us do our work, we would boo or we would not be excited that they were coming. Teachers have the exact opposite reaction. If they say which sub is coming and the students cheer, 
they probably know that it's not going to be good, that they're not going to get anything done. If they say that a sub is coming and the students boo or they don't seem excited about it, all the teachers say yes because they know that that sub keeps them in line. Habakkuk is responding to God with a high degree of faith and trust in God's plan. How can he rejoice in the Lord? Because God is his salvation and he gives him joy. We first need to understand this idea of salvation. We often think of salvation in the New Testament. God saved us through Jesus Christ. He gives us the gift of salvation, and that's true. But how would Habakkuk have understood salvation in the Old Testament? We mentioned this last week, but oftentimes they would think back to their time in Egypt. God rescued them. He caused plagues to happen. He parted the Red Sea. He saved them from Egypt, and he made them his own people. Time and time again throughout the Old Testament, we see that God is a saving and redeeming God. He is a God who saves. We see Israel sin. They're captured by people. God saves them, redeems them from that situation, and then asks Israel to follow him again. We see that cycle over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And Habakkuk knows that God is a saving God. We understand salvation not just from the Old Testament, but from the New Testament as well. How can we enjoy salvation as New Testament Christians? Why can salvation be our source of joy? First of all, we can understand that we've been saved from sin. That we have a need for salvation. In both the Old and New Testament, we see that God saves us. But he saves us especially from our sin. Our sin separates us from God. It tells us that we've fallen short of the glory of God. And without the saving power of God, we would be separated from him in all of eternity. We know in scripture that God hates sin and that sin must be punished. This must be realized to understand our need for salvation. We can also have joy not just because God has set us free from sin, but because he sent us a Savior and his name is Jesus. Jesus Christ came as 100% man and 100% God to die for our sins, even though he was sinless, so that we could have a relationship with him. He was killed on a cross and was put there to suffer and die for sin. And there's some people that will tell you that God doesn't want you to have suffering in life. That, it's, that suffering is not part of God's plan. It's not good for Christians to go through. Well, I will tell you, even in the gospel, suffering is part of the plan of God. God has a plan for us in suffering. We will suffer for the Lord. But Christ suffered ultimately for us so that we could know God. Finally, we need to understand salvation. What is it? It is a free gift of God offered to those who would repent of their sin and believe. As many preachers say, when we're saved, we're free from the penalty of sin. As we grow in Christ, we're gradually freed from the power of sin. And then in heaven one day, we'll be freed from the presence of sin through salvation. Now, does Habakkuk understand completely this New Testament idea of salvation? Does he know when Jesus is going to come? 
Does he know some of the specific details that are revealed to us in the New Testament? No, but he does know from the Old Testament that he's a sinner and that one day God would send someone to die for his sins. And they look forward to that promise. Habakkuk knew when he wrote this, what we know now, it is that God saves sinners. And this brings Habakkuk joy. And joy is different from happiness. Happiness is based on circumstances. Joy is found in the Lord. Ask yourself this question this morning. What would it take for you to be unhappy? Today's the start of the NFL season. If the Bears win today over the Packers, I will be a very happy person. Because this would be the first time we've beaten the Packers in I don't know how many years. And I really think we have a chance to do it. If they don't beat the Packers, I don't think they're going to win a lot of games this year. And I may not be a happy person. But regardless of what happens in that situation, or if you care about football or not, that does not bring me joy. Our joy is not found in our outward circumstances. Joy is not found in figs. Joy is not found in wine and drinking. Joy is not found in olive oil. Not in these material things, not in the things that bring us economic success. Joy is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why there are so many unhappy millionaires and billionaires who have all this money and all this wealth. It's not wrong that they have all that. But if they don't know Jesus, they have no joy. How does our salvation bring us unique joy? First of all, I would say it's because we're children of God. Romans 8.15 tells us that we've not received a spirit of slavery, but rather a spirit of adoption. Each day we can remember that we were once enslaved to sin, but now we're adopted by God. Salvation brings us unique joy because we have a heavenly father. There's many people here who have different family backgrounds. Maybe you have Maybe you've grown up in a good Christian home. You have good parents who loved you, who demonstrated what it is like to be part of a Christian family. Maybe you've not had a good background. Maybe your parents weren't what they should be. Maybe when you think of your family, you think of tension and fighting and disruption and pain. Maybe when you think of your father, you don't think of a father who loves you. That may take away your happiness, but as a believer in Jesus Christ, you can still find joy in the Lord. You can find joy in knowing that there is a heavenly Father who loves you, who sent his son to die for you, who calls you his child. We can find joy in the fact that we've been adopted by God. Secondly, we can have joy because our eternal destiny is secure. Many people say, well, salvation isn't just a get out of hell free card. And that may be true. But how many of us are happy we're going to heaven and we're not going to spend eternity separated from God in hell? And I would hope that's all of us. We don't just want to go to heaven so that we can go to some kind of eternal Disneyland. We want to be in heaven because Jesus will be there. Because God has made promises to us who are suffering on earth and he fulfills those promises in eternity. Those who have faced physical ailments can rest that one day they'll have a glorified body. 
Those who have faced hardship and suffering in this unjust world can know that there will be a day when there is perfect justice. Those of us who have lost loved ones will know that we will see them again in heaven. We can rest in the eternal hope that comes with salvation. Lastly, we remember that we can have joy because of a relationship with Jesus Christ. We sang a song last week called, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And it's a reminder to us that even when earthly friends abandon us, we have a heavenly friend in Christ who never abandons us, who never leaves us, but who gives us more joy than we can ever imagine. I want to mention this as well. We not only have joy in our salvation, we can have joy in the salvation of others as well. When Paul writes to the Philippian church, he says, I thank God when I pray for you, this is a paraphrase, because of your participation in the gospel. And it brings joy. One pastor of mine said, when you share the gospel with someone, God gets the glory, others get the benefit, and we get the joy. When is the last time you've shared the gospel with someone? Has it been a week, a month, a year, a decade? When is the last time you've personally gotten to see someone, understand their need for Christ, that they're a sinner, and then trust him? And we know that's not our work. We know that it's not us. We're not the ones who save someone. But have you gotten to experience that joy? of seeing someone you know come to Christ. We can rejoice in the Lord and his salvation. It is the salvation of God that causes us to have joy, no matter what our circumstances are. Lastly, we want to rely on the Lord for strength. Rely on the Lord for strength. Look at verse 19 with me. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on high places. It's interesting how Habakkuk chooses to close out this song. He uses two words for God that we find only in the Psalms. Yahweh Adonai, God the Lord. It means sovereign Lord. It shows us the majesty and the power of God. Yahweh, we know, is a personal and covenant name for God. It reminds us that God keeps his promises. Adonai shows us his majesty, his lordship, that he is master, his sovereignty, that he is over all. God the Lord, this sovereign God, we see is more powerful than anything else we can find our strength in. If you ever run out of batteries or run out of charge on your phone and found that frustration that you know something doesn't have energy anymore. If you're like me when we were growing up, my wife would probably not like this. When we'd run out of batteries in a remote, we would find another remote that had batteries. We would replace them and then we'd have batteries to continue watching TV instead of going to the store and picking up new batteries. Now when we did that, We were met with instant gratification. We knew we could continue watching TV without having to go and look for batteries. But what did we also know? That the batteries in that remote 
only had a certain amount of time left before they ran out as well. And I can remember one time as a kid trying to find batteries in remotes, but all the other remotes were out of battery. And so we were just, no one could watch TV in the whole house. Sometimes we find dependence on things that don't give us the strength we need. We find dependence on people that always seem to disappoint us. We find dependence in money that always seems to disappear and we never have enough of it. We find dependence in security. We find dependence in pleasure. But we always are let down. What Habakkuk is saying here is that I can rejoice in the Lord I can depend on the Lord. I can trust in the Lord because he is my source of strength. He never runs out. Habakkuk uses a couple different illustrations. He says, he makes my feet like the deer. I don't know about you, but I've never been compared to a deer. I've never been told, hey, you're as fast as a deer is. I've always been compared to maybe the opposite of a deer, a turtle or some kind of slow-moving bear or something. I've never been told, hey, you're just really, really fast. What does a deer symbolize? Speed. Sometimes they're too fast and they run in front of our cars when we're trying to drive. And by the way, as fall comes, watch out for deer. Okay? A couple different people. They not only symbolize speed, they also symbolize unbounding energy, unlimited potential. When we feel like we're out of strength, when we're tired, God gives us the strength and energy we need to keep going. There's sometimes where my wife and I come home from work and we're just done. We're just ready to lay around and not do anything. We're ready to call it quits. But the dogs have been in their crates all day and they're ready to play and they're ready to go for a walk and they're ready to run around. And if you say the word walk to them, they get excited. They go and find their leashes. They are just running around the house to the point where you have to go and take them on a walk. And sometimes I wonder, what would it be like to have their energy? Just this unbounding, limitless energy. And it's not like God's going to give us that type of energy. But when we feel like we can't go on anymore, God the Lord is our strength. He enables us to keep going. He says, he makes, my, he makes me tread on high places. That has the idea of security. You're up, you're lifted up. No one's able to get to you. No one's able to touch you. You have the protection, the strength, and the energy that you need. Dependence on ourselves will drain us. I've found in my life, as young as I am, that every time I try to focus on myself, depend on myself, Say, yeah, I can do it. I always seem to fall short. Dependence on the Lord sustains us. It gives us the energy that we need. And that's how Habakkuk chooses to end not only this song, but this book. You might say, we don't know what happens to Habakkuk. We don't know much about his life in general. But we do know this. Habakkuk had some hard questions He had some concerns. He had real life situations going on in his life. But yet in this book, he's told by God, I've got everything else under control. You need to live by faith. And I think Habakkuk chapter 3 is a great example of what it looks like to trust in the Lord and to be faithful to him. You may be going through suffering this morning in ways that I can't even imagine. 
that is just unique to your situation. And you may have questions for God. You may think that God is unfair. You can depend on the Lord. You can be faithful to him. Just because God has brought trials into our life does not mean we cannot be faithful. Does not mean we cannot live by faith. God still calls us to trust in him, to live as we should in Christ. So if you're suffering this morning, if you have been walking through a trial, may I encourage you to rest in the Lord, to find your strength, to find your joy in him and in his salvation. On our lowest days, on the days where we feel like we've done everything wrong, like no one is helping us, like we don't have anything else that we can offer, we can know that we're Christians and that we've been saved and that because of our salvation, we're children of God, we're going to heaven, we have an eternal destiny with him and that Christ is our friend. We've talked a lot about how we can ourselves go through suffering, walk well through suffering. I want to end our time this morning, close our service out by asking this question, how can we help others who are suffering? And in the last couple of months, I've thought about this question and I've reflected on myself. What do I say to people who are suffering? How do I try to help them? How do I try to encourage them when they're going through hard times? And I have thought some things might be good. Some, some things might be helpful. But have you ever looked back and thought, I wish I wouldn't have said that or I wish I would have done this? And so these are just some tips, some reminders for us. How can we help other people who are going through suffering? And first I would say this, be present. Be present. People want to know that you're there. And they want to know that you care for them. And that you're praying for them. Sometimes we don't want to be present because we just don't really know what to say. That's probably a good thing. Sometimes people don't need us to say everything. They just need to know that we're there with them, that we're present, and that we care for them. We can make our presence known, not in a big way, not in a way that's going to take up all their time and attention, but in a simple way that lets them know that you're praying for them. And I'll add this. Don't just be present when suffering happens. Be present through the rest of suffering. Be present after the suffering is over. Check in on them. Grief, anxiety, pain, worry, they often last longer than we would think. We sometimes think they're still struggling with that. Yes. Yes, they are. Be present. Maybe you can't think of anything to say. Don't say anything at all. Just let them know that you're there. Secondly, talk less, listen more. Job's friends were great until they started talking. And then they were no help. It's very unlikely that people will remember what you're going to say. If you're going to help someone and you think, I've got just the thing that they need to hear in this situation, it's probably not going to be what they need. People don't necessarily need you to say all these things, but they just need to know that you're there. I've thought about situations I've been in. Sometimes I've said more than I think I should have. Sometimes I felt like I couldn't say anything at all and I've been speechless. And I've found that people have appreciated my help more when I just don't say anything. And I've just told them that I'm here with you, I'm praying for you, 
and I don't try to tell them what's going on. Be careful of immediately trying to connect the dots. God may be using this in their life. God may be changing them and transforming them, but it's very unlikely they're going to be ready to recognize that immediately after suffering. Scripture tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep. Thirdly, offer specific help. Offer specific help. Many people offer help during trials and suffering, and that's not bad at all. That's good. But few take the time to specifically think about what would help someone. When my grandpa died when I was in college, many people prayed for us. Many people reached out to us. Many people said that they would help. It was my pastor that said, I'll come pick up Lance and drive him to the funeral. And that was something that a lot of people didn't think of, but that he was willing to do and take the time for. And that made all the difference in that situation. Sometimes we can't help in every situation. Sometimes it's not appropriate for help for us to help in every situation. But in some situations, it's good for us to offer specific help. Just as a side note, let me say this. If you promise to help someone, be sure to follow through with it. I know of a ministry couple whose son was diagnosed with cancer. He had his left eye removed because of this cancer. And he talks about how many people offered to help them. Many people promised to help them. But many people also didn't follow through on what they said to do. And that was almost as hurtful as what they were going through. Offer specific help to people. Lastly, pray. Pray for the family, the individual, the community who is suffering. Pray for God to help them during this trial, that they would find their strength in the Lord. Sometimes we think, is that all we can do is pray? Yes. It's the most important thing we can do. It's the thing that we can do that is going to help them the most. As we close our time in Habakkuk, it's been a joy to walk through this book with you. This is a book that sometimes we just overlook because it's a minor prophet, but it's full of so much godly wisdom that we need in suffering. And so don't let this knowledge go to waste. As you walk through suffering, and I hate to break this to you, but you will, we all will walk through more suffering as believers. Express your lament to God. Tell him your concerns. Trust in him. Rejoice in him. As you walk with others through suffering, Pray that God would use you and our church family in small and big ways to help those who are suffering. Next week, we'll begin looking at the book of Ephesians together. So I ask for your prayer this week as I begin to study for that and that God would use that in our church's life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Habakkuk, Lord, his life, his faithfulness to you the reality of what he went through, the words that he uses that are just so real and so authentic. God, help us to be like him. Help us to have faith in you, to trust in you in hard times, to rely on you for strength. Help us to help others who are suffering as well. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.